0: Liz, I love NATO. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I love you. <laughs> oh, Liz, I love you. Well, I love you because you a member. Liz is the only woman in NATO. That's
1: right. Jeff, 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 Jeff. Oh I, my love God. I love your you, I love you, foot I love you. It is uh, right in uh, front uh, of my face. Is it? How is it? Dude!
0: It's, just, it's not even in front of my... Uh, what is your depth perception going in here?
1: First of all, it's in front of Young Chomsky's face, too. Kiss it. Ew. Kiss the camera. That's disgusting. I was also, wait.
0: It's dirty. It's not dirty. I just... Yeah, I walked around on my bare feet outside. Oh, my
1: this. God. You know where it sucks at home? You're going to get sick.
0: What? Yeah. Wait, no. Hold on. What, what do you think of health is? You think if I
1: don't wear socks, I'm going to become ill? Yeah, you can get sick that way. From what? Just let me have my little things. Okay, yeah, well... I'll Hello,
0: everyone. Off. I'm Liz. My name is Brace, a shoeless, sockless, and ready to roll in the hay with any old <laughs> foot lover that comes along. Oh, my God.
1: That's disgusting.
0: Of course, we're joined by Young Chomsky, my footman. Um... <laughs> And the podcast is called True and on it. We're talking NATO.
1: Hello. We're talking NATO. N-A-T-O, or as I call it, OTAN.
0: Uh, so I looked that up today, NATO. Mm. Turns out it stands for North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Yeah. What did you think it was? Uh, nasty ass, uh, trashy, or European. You know that like O-E that's like combined into one letter so it's like nasty ass trashy europeans that's what i thought it meant because they're always being like i want to you gotta go to the lithuania to die or whatever Mm. i'm like i mean what the balkans or the baltic which one is which
1: yeah the north american terror organization
0: yeah uh the nasty let's combine them, nasty ass terror organization
1: (laughs) brace okay Uh serious moment for a
0: second all right let's talk
1: Why are we talking about NATO?
0: We're talking about NATO because, well, because everyone else is talking about NATO. Um, There has been, I read this opinion poll the other day. I think it made a lot of, it was all over the damn headlines, Mm. uh, where a lot of Americans were both calling for a no fly zone, which I Mm. guess would be an administrative thing that
1: Americans don't know what that
0: means. That we should not. Yeah. There needs to be a massive education campaign on what that means. but also don't want boots on the ground, and it was, a, you know, and that got me thinking, and I started looking up because um, there's been a lot of uh, polling around this recently. Support for NATO mm. in in various European countries. I uh, actually didn't look at America, but it doesn't really matter because it doesn't matter if Americans support NATO. The, the government does, um, and uh, it's through the fucking roof. Yeah, people love NATO right now. People have NATO fucking fever.
1: Probably like the most ever in NATO's history. Yeah, yeah,
0: actually, <laughs> yes, I believe so. I mean, Germany was like seventy-five percent. That's insane. <laughs> yes,
1: <laughs> it's insane. Oh my god. Um,
0: and you know, there's a lot of talk about closer integration with, um, Sweden and Finland, uh, who are not members of NATO but are sort of, let's say, NATO adjacent. Um, and it's just, it's in the news all the time. And, and, and looking at what people say, and I know I shouldn't gauge public opinion solely by this, but people, you know, I I feel like it's probably correct. Uh, people have insane fucking views on what NATO is. What do you mean? Well, I think a lot of people think that NATO is a purely, uh, defensive organization that just members just want to join. They come and they go as they please. Uh, and that it's never attacked anybody. And that it's basically like a bulwark of peace. Mm. I disagree.
1: Yeah. I think too, like, at least for these couple episodes, we have our good friend Ben Howard here, Mm -hmm. friend of the pod, who has been on the show, I don't even know how many times now, a billion? Look up in the show
0: history and if you see any episode that is like four hours Uh, That isn't the Las Vegas one. It's with Ben.
1: Yeah. Um, We have him here to help guide us because we basically, we want to talk about NATO and we have to kind of start from a history lesson a little bit. Yeah. And give the context for NATO's formation Mm -hmm. out of kind of the post-war situation and why kind of American interests were, um, you know pushing it so hard in western europe um and pushing this alliance and i think that like i basically think at the present moment there's like also a risk of nato like i'm saying nato as like a in quotations mm-hmm. like the the word nato becoming like just simply a political object or like a like fungible rhetorical discursive tool. Okay. You lost me on that one. Okay. A meme, basically. Yeah, I think it's right. like, it's like, it's, uh you know, there's a risk of it becoming a meme that is going to become detached of its actual like significance in mm-hmm. both the like current political conjuncture to sound like a stupid person, but also like in the historic, uh you know, in, you know, the histor- the formation of where we are now. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that, like, if we're going to unpack, like, what is NATO? What was the NATO? What is the NATO project? You know, that one of our tasks is to kind of, like, take that as an object and, you know, throw it in motion or Mm -hmm. break it open to kind of reveal these historical, you know, both international and national class dynamics that are at work with the development of this organization. And there is... At least, you know, at the point of formation, which was what the, we're talking about in this episode, although there'll be more, you know, the exportation of Fordist production and the mm-hmm. building of a large European market and service of American industrial and Atlantic finance capital interests that were, in the wake of the World War II, threatened by both the strength of the Soviet Union in the East and the labor bases and, crucially, the communist parties of the Western European countries. After yeah World war two
0: yeah uh i, I you know w- one thing i've seen is is uh and this is just some bullshit on the internet but i've seen like some left-wing kind of people i'll say like maybe soft left kind of people defend nato um and, and essentially defend nato in nato's own terms that is a defensive alliance that provides for the security of its members and i think what we want to show here is that that's not the truth i mean it's it you know rarely are are such uh you know sort of short pithy phrases uh, or, or descriptions actually fully truthful but in this case that's in fact very untrue and the opposite of true in fact i would say it's a lie and so uh what it's a, we want do- the big lie <laughs> it's the big lie yeah um and so we're doing a little nato series talking about the the past uh you know and and present of the organization i think to really uh to to try to 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 understand ourselves but to try to help people understand Uh, What exactly is this giant fucking organization's purpose? What's the point of this bullshit? Uh, And I think we figured it out actually uh, within three minutes in the first episode. Uh, But yet we recorded so much more. Um, anyways, uh, I think we should land the F thirty five now and eject the pilot, and then arrest him. And and can't land it. it. Exploded. Uh, no, no. You see? No. Did you see? You see the Israelis <laughs> can't put land out a video. Don't land. The Israelis put out a video. of Them shooting down. They say a drone with one. And I'm like, I need to see it with my own eyes. Yeah, fake, fake, fake news. Fake news. Even if it's real, fake. There's something weird going on there. <laughs> all, right, all, right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Let's get to it. Here at True and On we love any transnational organization. <laughs> if you have headquarters anywhere in Belgium, really anywhere in the northwest of Europe, we're a fan of yours. We love the IMF, we love the WHO, we love the other one where they go to Davos, uh, all those guys, every single one of those because we believe that people should come together And so in the interest of that, we have flown independent researcher Ben Howard out here to our secret bunker in the National Redoubt of Switzerland and are holding him at gunpoint until he swears allegiance to a 200-year-old Nazi general who we've kept alive with baby's blood. And uh, frankly, we're, we're thrilled to have him. Ben, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. I wish the circumstances were slightly different, but it's always a pleasure to be here.
0: Honestly, it's not
2: every day you get to touch a piece of history like this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's so great to have you back. It's been
2: a yeah. minute. I'm I'm very glad this is a a very opportune moment to talk about NATO. Everybody's talking about NATO, so it it feels good to uh, to uh, set the record straight. You know,
1: <laughs> yeah, we're here to debunk the debunkers. That's right.
0: Yeah, I I gotta say, everywhere I go, from the patisserie to the brasserie, everybody's talking about <laughs> NATO. Um, and, and I think there's some, there's some pretty obvious reasons why, right? I mean, from a, you know, one of Putin's stated goals of the invasion was that, uh, you know, NATO Ukraine had the possibility of joining NATO, but B more than that, uh, people have been talking about NATO in position of a no fly zone, which thankfully NATO has, uh, vetoed. I, I didn't think that was really ever a possibility anyways. Um, but, uh, article four was invoked by eight NATO nations, uh, I think either last week or maybe a week and a half ago. And more than that, NATO is just in news. I don't think a lot of people though really know what NATO
1: is. Americans got NATO fever.
2: Yeah, it really, I, I think that it's, uh, particularly it's in the post cold war situation. It's taken on a totally different role in many respects. Uh, in other respects a continuation of what it's always done. But I think that it's, um, it really accomplished many of its most important goals, I would say, and so in that respect, you know, we sort of live in the world that uh, certainly Europeans live in the in the Europe that NATO created. Uh, so it sort of has faded to the background uh, to a certain extent.
0: Yeah, I, I think like you know, for for people of our sort of age demographic, growing up in the aftermath of the Cold War, when there wasn't this like unified, not not just the USSR but the entire Warsaw Pact for Western Europe to be sort of divided along this line. This is the military alliance on this side. This is the military alliance on that side. All of a sudden, after the 90s, there was no military alliance on the other side. There was just one giant military alliance that slowly uh, and then more quickly uh, doubled in size, essentially, to take over uh, – not well, I don't know if that's necessarily the correct word to use, but uh, let's say to take up space, <laughs> bodies and spaces – Throughout all of not only Western Europe, but uh, like it has before, um, through throughout Central Europe, Eastern Europe, uh, and uh, sort of Southern Europe too, let's say the 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 southern tip of Eurasia with Turkey there, um, and uh, and I think it's time, yeah. But we set the record straight on what exactly this organization is. I, I want to start by talking about. One of the big reasons that NATO has been up, uh, been all up in the fucking news lately is because eight different countries invoked Article 4. So there's 14 articles in the North Atlantic Treaty, most of which you'll never really hear mentioned and, and don't really matter or they're ancillary to basically the two main ones. Article 4 essentially lets any, I mean, I, I don't necessarily have to read it out here, but it basically means that any NATO nation can invoke what is essentially like a meeting of all other NATO nations to assess it, uh, any kind of threat that it feels that it faces. Now, the number one invoker of Article 4, which has not been invoked very often, has been Turkey, which has <laughs> invoked it five times in the past 15 years, or maybe maybe even longer than that. Um, but with, uh, with the recent news that uh, a bunch of Eastern European nations and Central European nations have invoked Article 4, that has set into motion the first deployment, I believe, of the uh, NATO it's the NATO readiness force
1: -hmm It's a task force, right yeah to assess the need of whether they should you know pursue more uh, Research into organizing a possible response in retaliation. I mean, it's just—it's all a lot of meetings. Let's say,
0: yeah. Uh, but the, but the, the NATO response force—it it, was—is essentially like a group of. Well, it's 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 NATO essentially, uh, and all these soldiers have been deployed. I think it's like eighty five hundred American troops have been deployed throughout Eastern Europe, um, and essentially forces go on alert now. I don't think that necessarily means anything is going to happen. In fact, I don't think it means anything is going to happen. But I think it's pretty important to pay attention to what it actually looks like when, when uh, let's say, the situation gets a little hotter in Europe itself.
2: Yeah. And the, the I would, uh, obviously, NATO is a, a military and political alliance. That's what they'll tell you, right? It's yeah. a union of all of these European countries who are united together in the defense of Europe. And the, the Article 4 and then Article 5 is the real big one that is yes. really the, you know, reason that NATO exists, you know, according to NATO itself. It's not really the reason NATO exists, but it is the stated reason that NATO exists. And it essentially means an attack on one is an attack on all. Mm -hmm. So if you attack any NATO member, you have invited all of the other NATO members to declare war on you, essentially.
0: None of Uh, us are free until all of us are free, Ben.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It should be noted, though, that no one really knows what Article 5 looks like in practice. Yeah. It's been invoked once, obviously, um, after nine eleven, but it really when when it says that in the in at the actual text of Article Five, it says you know that if any such armed attack occurs, each of them in exercise of the right of the individual of collective self defense will assist the party or parties so attacked by taking forthwith individually and in concert with other parties such action as it deems necessary, which includes the use of armed force, but not necessarily. And I think like you know like any kind of um, alliances or treaties or, uh, you know, I don't know, um, deals. deals, yes, between nations, legally, legally binding deals, whatever we want to call this. Um, you know, all of that is, you know essentially political and and up to interpretation and over the years particularly i mean up until cl- like very very recently there's been a lot of pushback from european nations on whether or not even this has any teeth anymore right
2: yeah if you look even back at what macron was saying in in 2019 he did an interview yeah. in the economist where he essentially said that this is a dead letter in in many respects and there has been a lot of criticism, uh, in particular from some of the Eastern European countries, who are concerned that they're essentially second-tier NATO members. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, I mean, just logistically speaking, how how could NATO defend Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia from a, from a Russian invasion? Would it actually right. be possible? So then, would you know? Would they even attempt it? Attempt to defend it? Um, so it, it the the question of it does Article Five really? Certainly, if France or Germany or the United States or mm-hmm. K were attacked, that's one thing. Um, but but for some of these Eastern European countries, it's much less certain. Um, so, I, in theory, you know, if you if a Russian soldier steps foot into Lithuania, that means that you know there is a massive mobilization. And in in but is that actually going to happen? And when you consider the fact that Article Five is is uh, in the, the bedrock of NATO's defense. Uh, mission that's a that's a big open question to have
0: yeah i I think for much of nato's existence during the cold war which which we'll get to and I promise this we will get to this later um there there has been a quite a few questions on what its actual capabilities in terms of like real material you know boots on the ground defense of the countries that are nato members and i'm you know not even talking about a country like Lithuania, which I agree i think. That would be I mean I think Lithuania is basically the size of like the Donbass like it's not not the most defensible place in the world um, but but even at the height of the Cold War there were real questions and I actually I don't even think it was much of a question it was basically a statement of fact that like there was basically no way that that NATO could hold on to Germany in the invasion yeah. in the event of a Soviet invasion yeah. um, and, and I think that for as dumb and insane as the military leadership of of well most countries are, um, I, I doubt that anyone really believes that, that that's a that's a possibility in in especially the Baltics um, but even in a place like Poland
2: could I just add on to that yeah that, that NATO's explicit uh, policy for many years uh, during the Cold War with respect to a Soviet invasion was that they would use tactical nuclear weapons yes. pretty quickly and you know that it's one of the reasons that article 5 has been called the nuclear clause because right. once you introduce tactical nuclear weapons it very rapidly can escalate to a you know full scale strategic exchange and that's basically closes the book on on a lot of nations
0: yeah. And with uh, with a talk of a no-fly zone, especially, I mean, I didn't really ever think that was a possibility that NATO would do that. That is such an immense escalation or a possible escalation, almost certain escalation, that it seems totally without out of the bounds of reason. Although, again, not the best at predictions these days, um, but they themselves have said they're not going to do it. Um, I think a lot of people don't really necessarily know what that would mean in reality and, and yeah, you're right to talk about use of of nuclear weapons um, because that is that would be a real possibility in like a real shooting war uh between NATO and, and russia i mean people people like to point down the fact that there's been uh, you know fire exchange between um well, American, Russian, Turkish troops in Syria, but it's nothing on this level. There are, oh. you know, there are de-escalation stations. They have direct lines to one another. Um, it is, it is nothing like this. Um, and, and so, I, I think it's really important to keep that in mind. I, you, you put in uh, Ben a uh, a quote here by Lord Ismay that that people, if you read about NATO, you really can't escape this quote. And I, and I think this sums up essentially one of the main missions of NATO. More than anything else we could say.
2: Yeah, I think we've talked about the the nominal self-defense role, uh, but this gets into some of the other elements. So Ismay, he he was basically uh taken into the he he was the first Secretary General of NATO, essentially under duress. Churchill basically forced him to do it. He didn't want to
0: do it, yeah. Yeah, he
2: didn't want to do it, and he he didn't even want to do it for the five years that he did it. He agreed to a couple of years, maybe until they find somebody better, uh more willing. But he he said uh uh, that the purpose of NATO is to keep the Russians out, the Americans in, and the Germans down. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, you could rearrange, variously rearrange the order of those three statements, which is the most important. I would Depending argue- Depending Ameri- on what
1: point in history probably it changes. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> I would argue in terms of it's, you know, the beginnings of it, it was really about keeping the Americans in uh, mm. and and keeping the Germans under the thumb of the Americans. And then keeping the Russians out was, was kind of a second, almost a secondary, um, you know, despite the stated purposes of NATO- but I do think that that quote, uh, while not being completely correct, is basically the level of cynicism with which we should approach NATO uh, with respect to its stated purposes versus its, its actual reason for existing.
0: Well, let's take a little trip back in time to a place that all men know every single thing about, World War II, the big one, the, the uh, even greater war than the first one. The war that rocked Europe and also Asia and also some other parts of the world, but not as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, world War II ended 1945 and I, I, you know I, I tend to think that people understand somewhat the basic contours of history, but uh, you know there's, there's I'm always shocked that a lot of people do not. Uh, 1945 saw Europe basically totally devastated from war from the east to the west. I mean, it, even, you know, some of the Western European countries got off a lot easier, um, but by no means were they doing well. And the economic situation, basically everywhere in the world except for America, was dog shit.
2: Yeah, it, to the point that the very fundamental basics of capital relationships, like the labor relations, all of that was seriously under threat. I mean, it was a it was a total beyond just the physical industrial capacity of the countries being destroyed. I mean, the social fabric was essentially ruined, um, and it created an opportunity uh, for both the left and the right uh, to re, you know shape a new Europe and, and decide what Europe was going to look like. Um, but for the 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 big, obviously the the you know eight hundred pound gorilla in the room who had not been destroyed by the war was the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, which unlike Europe uh, and unlike the, the you know, not industrialized at this point, rest of the world, you know, was basically the only industrial economy intact on, on earth at this point in time. Um, and this was understood by Americans while the war was still happening, that, that the outcome of this was going to be that Europe was going to be completely destroyed essentially. And so there was already planning um, even before the U.S. entered the war, like the people, the, you know, the, the various groups who were agitating for U.S. entry into the war were were already anticipating what the post World War II uh, economic order was going to look like, um, and it essentially was. And this is all uh, this is all crib from Case Vander Pyle's book, the, the Formation of an Atlantic Ruling Class, um, which I think is really good on these. Yeah, that's topics. an excellent book. Yeah, and he talks about uh, his book goes all the way back to you know even the the Gilded Age.
1: Yeah, Um,
2: but there was this rise of what I would you know what he would call and and what I would agree you know is called liberal internationalism—the idea um, that—and this comes from Wilson's idea on the League of Nations Mm -hmm. and the idea that um, everybody should be independent, uh, that that you know there should be independent nations that should emerge from these colonial. uh, First off, the you know first off like the breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Yes. Uh, but also, it, you know, during World War II, it, it came to it include uh, the, the liberation of the European colonies. And this was, uh, you know, the, the, there were sort of progressive elements, you could say, you know, part of Roosevelt's New Deal coalition who were idealists and believed that these countries deserved independence, in particular, given their role in uh, fighting against the, the Japanese and the Germans on the, on the European front, uh, on the Asian front, rather, of the war. Uh, but there also, of course, were uh, industrialists and, and yes. economic people who had great economic interests, uh, because if as long as, for instance, Algeria or Vietnam uh, or Ghana or what have you is a, is a European colony, uh, it's going to have ex- almost exclusive economic links with the mother country back in Europe. Uh, and for these American uh, internet, liberal internationalists, they wanted a, a, an order where uh, you would have free trade between you know nominally Level playing field nations, I, you know. In reality, of course, not. Um, but you would have a free trade regime, and that this would naturally come to benefit the United States, which had a roaring economy, and with the loss of uh, demand for wartime materiel was going to need you know export markets for all kinds of heavy industry goods, capital goods, uh, you know, places to park uh, financial capital and, and invest it. Um, so they needed this. They needed. They they wanted to create this new world order post World War II that would. Um, Essentially, liberalized the international uh, political and economic scene uh, to their to their great benefit. It also had, as I said, many progressive uh, elements who were aligned with it, and it became essentially the basis for for the UN uh, in in essence. But it, I would say that the most probably the you know the the founding document or the, or maybe the turning point document was the Atlantic Charter, uh, mm-hmm. which was signed in in the summer of 1941 between Roosevelt and Churchill. And basically, the most important elements were the end of the colonial spheres of influence and, and, you know, the the corollary economic protectionism. Uh, Moving in the direction of this free trade regime, this open door policy, Um, there were lots of unresolved issues about how quickly should decolonization happen and, you know, what would be the ultimate political settlement there. You know, Roosevelt favored total decolonization, um, more or less.
0: He was a classic land back guy.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh and the uh the Western Europeans ended up basically endorsing this and it became uh, big elements became the basis of the uh United Nations Treaty that was signed that sort of formally a- allied all of the various countries that were fighting against the the Nazis and the Japanese during World War II. So it became kind of the founding document of this of this um alliance which would go on to win the war.
0: The US too um you know, during World War II and specifically, or most importantly really, uh, in the immediate period afterwards, basically did an about-face um, from the way that the government had acted in, in uh, the aftermath of World War I, where uh, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that the US was staying in Europe um, and that it was going to exercise great uh, economic, political, and military control over at least the western half of the continent um you know you you mention here the issue of decolonization and i think that really can't be discounted uh and it it really actually plays really into the uh history of nato as well uh because there were a lot of issues surrounding um disposition towards the colonies or uh, especially around countries on the periphery even if they aren't exactly uh what you would call classical colonies um, but uh but I think a lot of American um strategic planners, and and I'm not talking about necessarily militarily here, uh far-sighted Americans could see that uh, Britain was over. The British Empire was 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 done, uh the French Empire you know on its way out too. And and you know, it, it didn't take a lot of reading the tea leaves to see that. Uh these countries were economically devastated. Um, and and it would take a long time for them to in fact, I think it took a really long time for Britain to get back on its feet. Yeah. And so there was a there was a um, there was a sense that the the world order was going to change, and that America was finally sort of able to reassert its or to actually assert itself on the world stage in a way that um, that really no liberal democracy uh, of of the American type had before.
1: Yeah, I think an important component here too is that after the war, basically, with the kind of German industrial base totally hollowed out that American capital basically had an incomparable position in the world with regards to its like massive productive resources and uh, accompanying that its productive techniques. But in order, like you say, in order for uh, basically American industry to take advantage of that competitive position, it needed to liberalize the world market. And part of that meant like, as, you know, the, the great quote that we began this discussion with was keeping down the kind of German industrial base, because that really threatened, um, you know, any kind of American export of Fordism to, to Western Europe.
0: Now, you know, I have disagreed with American foreign policy many times throughout my career, but there is one, well, I, I guess I disagree with it the way it actually turned out. But I still truly, to my core, wish that America had gone through with the plan to break up Germany into 300 basically like independent, not that independent, but uh, interconnected states to make it a totally decentralized country that could never get back on its feet again. Because look at where that's gotten us.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, to to speak of NATO, you know, and in general, the, the, the European institutions, um, you know, you can imagine post World War II the question of Germany is a is a highly contentious one mm-hmm. for everybody who had just been, you know, killed and had their countries destroyed by racism. Right. And and of course, for the French in particular, all the way going back to World War One, you know, the Low Countries going back to World War One as well. So um the the question of Germany be- becoming what it is now, which I mean Germany is the preeminent power in Europe, you know. Absolutely. France is France's uh, I think probably on a terminal decline ultimately. And uh, ha- how do you get people in Europe, uh, particularly the, the European left uh, to accept this? And I mean, the model was let's integrate it into these European institutions, which will, will essentially make European reindustrialization and mm-hmm. rearmament acceptable. And I think NATO, that's why I think that you know, saying about uh, keeping Germany down it's not quite right. It's it's about keeping German under Germany under the American thumb, in
1: in right. particular,
2: uh, via these institutions.
1: Yeah, I think that yes, absolutely. I mean, the the kind of post war establishment of American hegemony was directed then simultaneously, I think, against you know, you know, as we noted, the Soviet Union, right, but also the threat of like national self-contained reconstruction Mm -hmm. of the Western European economies. And so there was kind of this like dual threat to American hegemony and it was able to kind of, um, like launder (laughs) essentially it's, it's, um, you know, Fordist economy and it's, it's productive capacity through this idea of like a European continent, right. To, to, um, Reindustrialize the Western nations in the American image.
2: Yeah, I think this quote from Walter Lippmann really puts those. You know, he's considered the father of neoliberalism and and has many other uh, unofficial titles. Uh, mm-hmm. And he said in 1943, very prescient: uh, once the potential ag- antagonism between the West and the USSR is recognized by dissolving the alliance which exists in order to wage this war, Second World War against the Nazis. One or all three victors will inevitably move towards arrangements with the defeated powers. As this arrangement develops, the former victors will become competitors for the revival of power of their former enemies, you know, German and Italian reindustrialization, rearmament. For unable to enforce the disarmament of the vanquished because they have now antagonized one another, as I say, the West and the USSR have antagonized one another, they will see that the next best form of security will be to make allies of the rearmed vanquished. Now I don't think we should take this just at face value seriously. I think what he's essentially saying is, um, you know, he takes it as a given. We're going to be antagonistic towards the USSR. That's our policy. We're not going to, you know, and this is basically comes from, you know, capitalist opposition. It's not geopolitical. I think this is basically capitalist opposition to socialism, to communism, to forms of of economic uh, arrangement that that are not, uh, you know, favorable towards these uh, capitalist interests. So, given that that's our policy. Uh, that means that we have to rearm these and, and reindustrialize these countries, these fascist countries, uh, so that we can essentially direct them against the USSR. I mean, that's essentially what he's saying here. And he—that was already, I think, a pr- based on the fact that he wrote it in 1943 in his book. I think that was probably a pretty common idea uh, in the U.S. and in Europe already at that point.
1: Yeah, because see, the the idea of like national reindustrialization by these like by these countries themselves, right? It's not just that you know American hegemony was threatened by national interests of these countries or national capital or regional capital or whatever, although that's true. but also that what would have been required, as we saw in the u k after the war, was like a massive um and threatening compromise between labor and capital in order to mm-hmm. reindustrialize. and the communist mm-hmm. parties were very strong in in postwar Europe. they like had, Like, great – I mean, people loved them because of their staunch and, like, very, you know, obvious and, um, you know, powerful resistance to the Nazis. And, you know, so they enjoyed, like, a good reception nationally. And any kind of industrialization would have to include strong labor requirements in order to really expand the industrial bases. And that would threaten any kind of American hegemony moving, you know, past the war.
0: Yeah, and something that we see shades of throughout, well, you'll, you'll understand, but throughout the history of NATO, uh, is the fact that these Western European Communist parties, and Eastern European Communist parties as well, though that's sort of dealt with differently, um, these Western European Communist parties came out of the war, like you said, to, to, to huge acclaim from, from large parts of the population, almost all of them more popular than they had ever been at any point in their history. And more than that, uh, they were armed. Um, you know in in, mm-hmm. in almost every country the communists had formed uh, if not the backbone then oftentimes the the totality of the re- of resistance movement um to to occupiers oftentimes it was also like a small uh uh sometimes collaborationist monarchist resistance movement <laughs> functioning alongside it but uh you know in Italy in France in particular in greece especially um obviously we saw in albania uh which to everyone 's surprise uh they not only, uh, one, but took over, uh, and then Yugoslavia too. Um, you know, and, and Belgium for that matter, Mm -hmm. uh, these, these resistance movements had a huge amount of, uh, of public sway and, and, uh, that, that created a really sticky situation with rebuilding. Um, you know, the economies of these countries are totally devastated. And then you suddenly have these large armed and popular communist parties, um, Actually, able to exercise power. And sometimes, in like, I think in the case of France, in coalition governments.
2: Yeah. And, and this uh, the, this anti communist turn amongst the allies, the, you know, it happened even before the war was over. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the Greek example, you have the British, because Greece had been in the British sphere of influence for a long time. Yeah. And, um, you know, well, they the, were.
0: The British have a Greek king.
2: Yeah, exactly. Prince. And, the, and the British were supporting uh, these Greek. Uh, fascist death squads, which were formerly a part of the collaborationist Nazi, you know, government uh, that was collaborating with the Nazis in, in Greece. Uh, before, And they were killing communists and socialists and other anti-Nazi partisans before the war was even over. And this was supported by the British. You had in Italy, northern Italy, which was not yet um, liberated in 1944, there was a, a Alan Dulles actually went and negotiated an agreement between the Italian industrialists, uh, and the Nazis, who were o- occupying northern Italy, uh, to try and keep the Yugoslav army and the Red Army out of northern Italy, which uh, would have been, you know, pretty devastating for their for their purposes. So even before the war was over, the, this anti communist turn had already begun, uh, which I think shows you the the level of anti fascist commitment among <laughs> the uh, among the liberals in, in Europe and the U S.
0: Um, needless to say, that the the, uh, the Western uh, powers and the USSR's relationship frayed very quickly in the aftermath of World War II. Um, I mean, l- like we said, there were already signs that it was beginning to disintegrate. Essentially, all throughout the war. it, it is actually sort of startling to look back on all these conferences and these treaties signed and uh, and, and these sort of like accolades given to each other, knowing that like. This was so tenuous, and, and indeed, it, it fell apart, I mean, basically immediately in the aftermath of the war, because both sides had very different goals for the countries that essentially came under, uh, well, I mean, I think, yeah, occupation by both. Um, the, uh, the Americans, uh, I think most listeners will probably have, if you're American or, or European, you'll probably have a good idea of, of at least what the general outline of this is. Uh, But a huge component of the American, uh, uh, America asserting itself in Western Europe was the creation of the Marshall Plan. Um, And the Marshall Plan was a hugely, I would say, successful um, (laughs) American effort to really mold Western European political and economic culture uh, into its, not necessarily its own image, but into an image that it found um, suitable to stand next to.
2: Yeah, there were a lot of factors that led to the Marshall Plan. I think the I think the big one is something that Liz mentioned, which was in the immediate aftermath of the war, there was a return to the older uh, what you might call like state monopolist mm-hmm. model of development, mm-hmm. where uh, you have national economies in Europe which are oriented towards their own uh, colonies, chiefly, as well as in uh, sort of Eastern European markets that they would put finan- you know they pour financial capital into. So There was a brief return to that, and part of that had to do with the US uh, suffering problems immediately after the war. The New Deal compromise had some trouble, uh, particularly with wage controls, which
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, you know, put serious pressure on this labor capital alliance that had existed immediately before the war and then was strengthened during the war. You, know, you had that turn against the USSR because people like Roosevelt had thought, um, you know, given the USSR is going to be in the same position, arguably mm-hmm. worse than Western Europe we can do the same thing to to the USSR that we're going to do to Europe, which is make it an element of this liberal international order, essentially, you know, condition aid to them on on, uh, them obeying American diktats. That didn't work out, but that had been the idea. So, um, when when that state monopolist model begins to develop uh, and you have these relatively strong communist and socialist parties, you know, which was a complicated alliance because, you Mm -hmm. know, state monopoly involved Colonization, you know, keeping the colonies, and you know, how does that work with the left? But it uh, that uh, caused in the in the United States um, a real uh, consternation, like how you know we're going to lose. Essentially, we're going to lose Europe. We're not going to be as prominent in Europe as we had planned to be. So the so a major component of this is the question of decolonization, which we've already discussed. But um, you know there was real resistance to this, and I think you know uh, sort of emblematic of this was the Suez Crisis, where mm-hmm. you know this mm-hmm. nationalist government. This was in 1956. This was after the after the uh, Marshall Plan. But I think this is emblematic of the kind of tensions that were occurring here, um, where you know the U.S was willing to accept an independent Nasser and wanted to deal with him. They certainly didn't want it to weaken his national movement, of course, but they didn't want Egypt and other, other countries in Africa and Asia to be colonies, because that would mean an exclusion of American capital mm-hmm. uh, to the benefit of European capital. And they did not want to have strong national capitals. They wanted to have a glo- you know a, a, mm-hmm. a transatlantic uh, It wasn't global at this point, but they wanted to have a transatlantic ruling class, and so that meant liberalizing his colonies. So that was a huge, that was a huge problem. De Gaulle you know, was very in favor of holding on to Algeria and, mm-hmm. and holding on to uh, Vietnam. And there were elements in the US that also uh, were particularly the most reactionary elements that were accepting of this. Um, but these more liberal international elements wanted that, that kind of decolonization. Um, so there was an understanding that we need, to, we need to be aggressive here. We need to go on the offensive. And that was essentially what the Marshall Plan was. Um, it was an attempt to reshape the European economy in the American image. Uh, for one thing, uh, in order to make uh, the the European economy um, much more integrated internally, in terms of all the European markets uh, becoming a, a common market, which they are now today, it's been successful. Uh, and then also to integrate um, the European markets with the American market mm-hmm. and with the UK. Uh, and there had been conversation in the you know during the war of of a full on political confederation between Western Europe, the U.S. and the UK. That obviously was not workable initially, but that was that was one of the goals that um, that they had, and, and another, of course, was was a, uh, you know essentially a free trade zone, uh, which still hasn't happened, but but uh, which many people wanted to happen. So what we end up with is uh, a, a massive influx of American capital, uh, production techniques, labor discipline, mm-hmm. again a variety of things to recreate the European economy in the American image to the American benefit.
1: You mentioned really just briefly, and I, I just want to highlight it because you mentioned a transatlantic capital alliance, and we we haven't yet men- mentioned kind of the the force of Atlantic cap uh, finance capital, which also was basically um, you know the vestiges of a uh, British and American kind of finance capital, you know money money circuit that had really come to prominence um, like right before the turn of the twentieth century. But this is also a big. They 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 really wanted uh, a big European single market because it mm-hmm. meant the that um, you know the circulation of finance capital could could really um, grow. So you have these kind of these you know these these antagonisms between industrial capital and finance capital that are also kind of shaping these these different movements.
0: What what I think is so ironic about all of this, and we, we've talked about this on the show before. Is that if you really want, um, if you really want a picture of German uh, hegemony over Europe, <laughs> the goal of so many German nationalist leaders uh, since German national the advent of German nationalism, I look no farther than the EU. You know, the 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 immense control that Germany uh, holds in that organization is just astounding, and and really something that the Nazis uh, and and any Kaiser could have only dreamed of.
2: Yeah, I think, I think a, a major consideration here, because another element of the Marshall Plan that was crucial was that uh, receiving funding was conditional on only trading with other people mm-hmm. who were receiving Marshall Plan funding. And this, this is what created that, you know, we have this vision of the, of the Iron Curtain as being yeah. a Soviet attempt to prevent, you know, people from fleeing the horrors of communism. Yeah. It really began with this Marshall Plan idea that we're going to make an economic blockade uh, because one of the one of the most important so it, you know if you look at the French economy it was very oriented towards Eastern Europe prior to the war, lots of French financial capital rather than being on this transatlantic circuit uh, Liz that you mentioned a lot of French finance capital was on this eastern European yep. circuit that was also the case uh, with a lot of German capital, and there was a lot of concern about um, and this is still one of the animating concerns around Europe today is Germany and Russia. Yes, we this... cannot ha- we cannot have a close economic relationship with Ger- between Germany and Russia. That's not tolerable uh, for the, for for the U.S. and for the U.K. and uh, and that that was really hammered here was that if you're part of the Marshall Plan, you can only trade with other Marshall Plan countries, and that begins this economic blockade of of Eastern Europe.
1: Yeah, John Foster Dulles in 1949, he said, if the treatment of Germany is such as to involve the Germans becoming more friendly with the Russians than with the West, we are wasting any money at all in Western Europe. And if that sounds familiar at all, when you're thinking about Nord Stream 2, like there's yeah. a reason for that. Exactly. Because the biggest fear for American, industrialist American, and Atlantic finance capital is the union between Soviet and now Russian, uh, you know, uh, gas and raw materials and the sh- the raw power of German industrial base.
0: I mean the Marshall Plan too. You know, we 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 touched on this earlier, but a a huge component also was essentially aimed at domestic communist parties too. Um, you know, the 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 rebuilding, the presence of not only American aid but but like. This is something that you encounter a lot, when, you know. Later, when we talk about NATO, but in all the stuff I've read on NATO, from from both founding members and and various bureaucrats throughout the years, has been the the strength of sort of the spiritual promise of America being present on the continent, uh, and the the actual, you know, if if it, if people can't actually see it with their eyes, this idea that America is not only there but it's protecting them and it's aiding them. And, uh, and in the intervening years, particularly from like about 1945 to, and lights were kind of out by 1949, but basically from 45 to 50, there was a real chance that communist parties in many of these Western European nations could, if not have outright majorities, um, uh, you know, win, win, a, win a co- within a coalition government um, or take power in some form and the Marshall Plan was really aimed with that in mind as well. You know, it was not just this sort of like altruistic, um, well, I don't think any of us are claiming it was altruistic, but it was not an altruistic program of like helping these, uh, ruined nations reform themselves. Um, but it, it had a pretty explicit political and economic goals that, that aligned with, uh, American foreign policy. Um, you know, uh, in, in the, the – so much shit happened right after World War II. Obviously, that's to be expected, but it's just so insane reading about it because it was like every two months sort of just an insane history-making, um, you know, event occurred. Uh, I think some of the big ones um, uh, in terms of the Americans uh, or me, rather the West, West Europe and Americans thinking, uh, particularly the Prague coup. Mm. Um, where the communist party, and this is something I've said on this show before. If you are a communist and you and in coalition with other groups take power after a war, make sure you get the interior minister position. Mm -hmm. You always want to get, you know what? Even if you're not a communist, whoever's listening to this, this is just general life advice. If you're offered any cabinet position, always take interior minister. Uh, and that's what the communists in, uh, in Czechoslovakia did. And, uh, and they were able to, with a popular mandate and also military and police support, uh, take power in Prague in, uh, in 48. And this caused a lot of concern in the West. Oh uh, yeah. Everyone this,
1: freaked.
2: Yeah.
0: You take, you take power in one little coup and everybody loses their mind. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, Czechoslovakia obviously had been in the German sphere of influence. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So obviously, that was the whole, you know, one of the issues that led Hunter, to war.
0: Heinang or whatever that guy's name was, yeah.
2: Yeah, so losing losing that, you know, had, a I think, a pretty serious psychological effect for a lot of these people because it was, you know, that's a squarely central European country that oh, was yeah. assumed was going to be industrialized under German auspices and that did not work out that way. Um, and so that I think is really what kicked the defense planning in particular into overdrive. There, you know, it had already begun. Uh, I mean, you had, you, but even if you look at 1947, the Dunkirk Treaty between France and the UK, mm-hmm. that was nominally about Germany. Yeah. Mean, if you look at what the no, cont- it,
0: it, yeah, it's about Germany.
2: Yeah, that is what they were worried about was you know uh, uh, Germany coming back. Will yeah, you explain
1: but- really quick for people who don't know who that what that is?
2: The, so the Dunkirk Treaty was a treaty signed between at the at the really at Ernest Bevin's, uh, who was the British Foreign Minister immediately immediately after the war, and um, yeah, it was it was a it was a mutual defense treaty between France and and Britain, and the it was it was nominally meant to. I think that people probably had other ideas, you know, mm-hmm. in mind here because again, creating these defensive treaties, uh, you know, was understood by much of the populace to be one of the causes of World War One and World War Two. So. I think it was part of it was a pretext, but nominally it was about uh, reuniting militarily the UK and France in a mutual defense treaty as against Germany, Mm -hmm. a resurgent Germany at that point. Um, But I think very quickly, and I think the Prague coup had a lot to do with this, that pretext went away. And this uh, France UK military alliance was then incorporated into a a broader military alliance that included the Low Countries, uh, which had themselves united into this Benelux. Uh, customs union. The you know Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg had had long had very close economic ties, and, mm-hmm. um, so they were pretty easy to integrate at that point in time. Uh, and so that I think that's really what kicks off this the creation of this Western Union, which becomes the nucleus of of NATO, which which is formed a year later. So I do think that Prague coup really had a a big psychological um, impetus. For 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 the creation of this, and you know, uh, of course, a lot of propaganda that went around, you know, went along with that, and, and which had an effect on the, the broader population as well.
0: Yeah, and it, it's sort of um, darkly funny to look back on that as the Prague coup being this like really shocking moment for uh, for the people in charge of uh, of Western Europe and America, because we were doing precisely the same thing, except maybe a little more nimbly uh, behind the scenes uh, in essentially every country that we had control over. In that, and that means keeping their guys out and our guys in uh, through whatever means necessary. Uh, did not take a coup in many of these countries because we could just pump money into them. So a flurry of treaties gets signed around this time, 47, 48, 49. Um, this leads to the creation of something called the Western Union, which includes the US, Canada, Denmark, Norway, Iceland, but also Italy and Portugal, um, and uh you know that turns into what what was it the western something else another western union
2: yeah it starts it starts with the western union which is just france and france and the uk plus the benelux and then it becomes the western european union which incorporates a a much broader you know scandinavia essentially it brings in scandinavia iceland uh and then italy and portugal who you know portugal was still you know full-on fascist at that point and Italy was, you know, had been was the first defeated power to now be incorporated into this Western European uh, defense architecture, which I think is pretty significant. Uh, particularly given that, um, you know, that that time period, uh, 1948, that's when the first uh, American machinations began in, in Italy uh, in earnest around that 1948 election. So I think Italy's incorporation into that defense uh, defensive union is a is a uh, pretty important event.
1: So then to take a step back for a second, to like kind of lay it out, the industrialization, or reindustrialization, rather, with this like formidable German, you know, labor base, which is massive, by the way, is presenting a threat to uh, the um, like continued,, uh, let's say, emergence of American hegemony after the war, because basically they're like, okay, you know, Prague has fallen to communism. We're, that's like Germany's backyard we're totally afraid that this huge massive labor base which is you know already like you know already organizing already has like good uh, a lot of like um you know a socialist base and a communist base within it we're afraid that they could be next and that presents a huge problem for our future and you know our ability to kind of you know have influence over Europe and additionally we have now the Soviets in the East looking westward towards Europe. What are we going to do?
2: Yeah. And this, this was sort of the, at this point in time, the, the basics of the American cold war posture were being established at this point. And, and I think NSC 68 is a good document to look at, you know, written by Paul Nitze under, under the Truman white house. And uh Again, this is about creating a pretext, this is their understanding, and they're creating a pretext for this defensive alliance that, that they feel they need to create in Western Europe, essentially to make Western Europe safe for capitalism, uh, you know, along the lines that they wanted. And the, the NSC-68 NSC uh, says, Soviet efforts are now directed towards the domination of the Eurasian landmass. Uh, The United States is the principal center of power in the non-Soviet world and the bulwark of opposition to Soviet expansion is the principal enemy whose integrity and vitality must be subverted or destroyed by one means or another if the Kremlin is to achieve its fundamental design. So this idea is, again, this is the American perspective, we are the upholders of freedom and essentially the guarantors of international capitalism at this point in time. So therefore, going on then SC68 says the frustration of the Kremlin design requires a free world, the free world to develop a successful, functioning political and economic system and a <laughs> vigorous political offensive against the Soviet Union, that is to say, NATO and your and economic integration. Uh, so these in turn require an adequate military shield under which they can develop. So this is essentially the 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 if the US is going to be um, the bulwark of the international capitalist system, that's the vision. That's the long-term vision, which was ultimately achieved. Um, then that means that we have to make Europe safe for capitalism, and that means we need to create an American-directed defensive shield uh, to protect Europe. And this was, you know, I mean, this was controversial in the U.S. You know, after World War One, for instance, all U.S. soldiers left Europe. Mm-hmm. You know, it was not our problem. But at this point, um, this new economic vision pushed by uh, you know the American you know bourgeoisie at this point in time uh, necessitated that we create this defensive alliance uh, that is going to keep uh, serve the dual functions of you know the stated pretext, which is prevent USSR from invading, but also to subvert the democracies of these countries to ensure that the domestic left never took power in these countries, um, which was not stated explicitly, but I think you can read between the lines and see a lot of that in here.
0: There's a similar British telegram uh, to the US State Department, also from 48. Uh, it's It's kind of long, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the Brits say, I'm convinced, therefore, that we should study without any delay the establishment of such an Atlantic security system, so that if the threat to Norway should develop, we could at once inspire the necessary confidence to consolidate the West against Soviet infiltration, and at the same time inspire the Soviet government with sufficient respect for the West to remove temptation for them, and so ensure a long period of peace. Now, I think what he is getting at there is that uh, you know, one of the main purposes of NATO, um, and, and this is something that we'll get into with more details later. Uh, NATO was was basically unable to stand up militarily uh, against the Soviets, certainly for any period of time uh, until it could get its shit together if the Soviets attacked. Uh, keep in mind, the Soviets there. There is absolutely no indication, um, and historically, there's no evidence that the Soviets actually did have any designs on invading Western Europe or Norway or anything like that. Um, but, uh, but, but really what the British are saying here is that we essentially need to give this illusion, uh, and to give this, this, uh, to make this alliance, like a, a itself a bulwark rather than the actual like military threat that it could represent.
1: Yeah. I think like if we can think of the Marshall plan as the way of American capital exporting, its system onto Europe to make sure that it reindustrialized in the American image, and then was able to kind of birth the the these new European classes that mirrored the American ones as well. Then you can kind of think of Western Union and then what becomes NATO as the the kind of second like echelon of this um, assault, this American hegemonic assault on Europe. As a kind of like the 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 kind of like defensive or military wing when you had this Marshall Plan kind of as the productive arm of this kind of like two pronged um assault i don't i don't know I keep saying assault, maybe that's wrong, but there's like there's a quote from Paul Hoffman who was the Marshall aid administrator in nineteen fifty and he said explicitly he said Europe would have been communistic if it hadn't been for the Marshall Plan." And I think that it's, like, really important to understand that, like, so much of it was, again, transforming productive capacity and, like, where those productive um, and, like, labor arrangements were going. And then following that, creating uh, a kind of, you know, this sort of organization, this defensive, but as we'll show, offensive organization that was able to then enforce like violently enforce those labor arrangements and productive arrangements on these countries.
0: So we get here to 1949 and the formation of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And and can I say for for one second, what a, just a dog, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. I mean, NATO, okay, I guess it's, it's nice that you have an acronym that you can also pronounce like a word, but come on, give me a break with that. You could have come up with, think of the axis that's such a great name. I mean, they were t- I think it was technically like the anti-common turn pact or whatever. But like the allies, I mean, these are really catchy. NATO, I mean, it sounds like it sounds like something that would do your taxes. <laughs> That's why
1: you got to call it Otan like everyone else in the world.
0: Well, <laughs> Turkey and Greece join in 52. They are the first two countries that are added right after the um, – or the, they are the first two countries to be added after the initial founding members of NATO. Now, Greece, like we'd mentioned, had just endured a pretty devastating civil war after World War II where the resistance movement to the Nazis had basically been rounded up and shot by the British and then uh, Greek royalists and, and and current and ex-fascists. Uh, which developed into a large civil war uh, between the communist and progressive forces and uh, the British-backed uh, Greek government. That uh, that ended in a loss for the Greek uh, communists. Uh, there is a there is a sort of um, a lot made about Stalin's sort of refusal to hand them arms. The Yugoslavians tried to help, but they didn't have much to to work with there. Uh, and then Turkey also joined the same year. Uh, Turkey's way of getting in was basically to be like, well, if you don't let us into NATO, we might be neutral uh, from now on.
1: <laughs> A tradition that still stands today, by the yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, Turkey, Turkey, the gods of neutrality.
0: Oh, my God.
2: Yeah. How are you in NATO and you buy Russian air defense equipment? <laughs> That's so crazy. Cool.
0: They're so fucking – I mean, I, I hate Turkey. Yeah. They've, like uh, Turkish soldiers have killed people I know but you got to give them props for this. I mean, it's they are
1: just crazy yeah. that they're able to maintain that. Just like it's complicated. Like most in, in NATO, NATO country too. <laughs>
0: They've yeah. fought another NATO country. I mean, Turkey is, and like I was saying, I think they're the only country besides Poland uh, to have ever previously invoked article four. And they just invoke it constantly. Like you got by the third article four invocation by, by Turkey, you know, the guys in here are like, all right, I, I get it there's like you're afraid of a plane like <laughs> it'll be fine but the next country to join NATO is my most hated country in the history of humanity Germany in 1955 and this is when what 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 animal represents Germany that uh, the lion I feel like Kaisers are like lion like
1: what? The is bear. that a lion? The eagle, eagle right? The eagle, yeah. But I every thought we got the, the is that eagle. where we took the eagle from? Yes, the Russians mm. are bear. Yeah, Russians are bear. I think we're the eagle. I feel like... The condor? Mm. <laughs> That's kind of <laughs> just like another eagle. It's not like a horse or something. No, that a would horse? be... Horse?
0: No country's animal is a horse besides the Mongols. I feel like there's Scotland as a horse. Yeah, it's a Shetland. Yeah. Anyways, the fucking Germans come back.
2: Yeah, I think uh, I think the the context for this is that you have a massive you have a country that has a massive labor force that's yes. rapidly being reindustrialized. Uh how is that going to express itself at the political and military level in the context of a new this new post-war Europe? And you know, as we mentioned earlier and as uh, should be obvious. Everybody's fucking freaked out about this. Yeah, because the Germans have have created two world wars on the continent. They can't be uh, trusted. They cannot. I mean, In like that's,
0: twenty years too. Let's be clear. Like, I th- I think when you actually look at like the starting dates of World War, the ending date of World War One, and the yeah. starting date of World War Two, you're like, guys, you just you wanted to do it again.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, and the French would take you all the way back to the Franco-Prussian War yeah, as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you yeah. know, so there's a long history of German militarism. And this was also concerning for the people who wanted Germany to be, you know, powerful in Europe again. I'm talking about the Americans who wanted Germany to be powerful in Europe again. But um, it became a, so in the same way that German economic reconstruction was um, sort of under the auspices of the European coal and steel community, which was this uh, free trade zone, uh, particularly between France and Germany, with respect yes. to coal and, and those, uh, con- you know, formerly contested areas in the border mm-hmm. between France and Germany, uh, but also uh, uh, that that um, yeah, the German steel industry would serve the American auto industry rather than the German military industry. Uh, but now, you know, you have a you, Germany has a new place in Europe, uh, given this economic transformation that's that's being undertaken, and by 1955 is pretty well and fully taken hold. So, how do you incorporate German militarism now into Europe? And the way is to make it a part of NATO and make, uh, it, the idea was, let's make uh, the the German impetus towards militarism uh, serve in the defense of, of Western Europe as a whole. Yeah. Um, I think really it's about um, trying to, you know, have your cake and eat it too, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a powerful, any powerful, great nation, you know, they're, they're going to try and throw their weight around militarily and diplomatically. So, how do you build Germany up and and simultaneously not allow it to become a threat to your, to this new liberal order you're trying to create in Germany. Um, but the, you know, along with the incorporation of the, the West German uh, state into, into NATO uh, all of these Nazi elements get incorporated into NATO uh, in, in a very, I mean, I, if the European public had known about this, uh, I think it would have not, it would not have gone this way, but I mean, you know, the, the, uh, some of the core elements of the, uh, Nazi intelligence apparatus were basically wholesale, uh, incorporated into NATO, the Gallon oh, organization, yeah. for instance. Um, but you also had, um, you know, Hirsinger was one of the, uh, you know, he was like a, uh, you know, Bunzwehr, you know, Landsver general, uh, Nazi Party member, and and he became uh, you know one of NATO's uh, military sec- general secretaries. So uh, this this um, it meant incorpor- you know West Germany had not really been denazified,
1: and no. so inc-
2: incorporating them into NATO meant incorporating some of those uh, fascist elements into the into the Western European security architecture, which I think should should tell you something about what the intention of that organization was. Well, the West
0: Germans. Um- really had, I, I think they knew this sort of even coming out of the war. I mean, you see indications that with a Gellin organization, that the Gellin and sort of the group of people around him, and there were similar groups too, that may not have been as effective or may not have been just directly transformed into the German intelligence service. But a lot of veterans uh, of both the Wehrmacht, Wehrmacht uh, and the SS too, realized that their skills, they saw the way, which way the wind was blowing. And they realized that their skills and their anti-communist bona fides were going to become really um, valuable currency in a post-war environment. Uh, Germany began talking about rearmament in around 1950, although I'm sure conversations that are uh, unreported as of now occurred before then. Was something called the Himmlerad Memorandum um, that came out of a, a group of high-ranking uh, Wehrmacht soldiers, uh, you know, generals, uh, and uh, who gathered at uh, Chancellor Adenauer's request. And they had a few demands uh, for for German rearmament um, if they were going to become an effective anti communist fighting force. Uh, the first and foremost was that all war criminals be released. Uh, that you it can no longer slander the Wehrmacht or the Waffen SS, and uh, there needs to be propaganda put out to uh, restore faith in German might. Now this is um, this is basically in line with what Americans were already doing. Now there was there was there was some. Sort of competing in contradictory elements in the American occupation. Uh, there was sort of this veneer of denazification, but at the same time, you had the CIC uh, and all of and basically every intelligence agency, Army, uh, OSS, all of them uh, b- trying to pluck all the war criminals that they could yeah. out of either prison or out of hiding and and turn them into agents and assets. Uh, you know, we we saw basically. The farce of denazification uh, and and all the trials and the imprisonments um, really came to a halt w- in the 1950s. I mean, I mean the, nobody at that point nobody was even pretending that anyone gave a shit anymore. Now, keep in mind, 1955, when when Germany joined NATO, they had just finished doing the Holocaust ten years before. Like they they were they were you know gassing uh, Jews and, and, and you know cremating them. A decade prior to this, and a lot of the people in the German political military intelligence structures were people who had, if if, if not directly participated, actually a lot of them had been not only direct participants, um, but actually uh, had helped plan it. Um, you know, you, you mentioned Galen before, uh, or Galen, however you know how the Germans pronounce it. But he brought with him basically the most sadistic band of killers that you could have ever imagined. A lot of these guys, uh, General Hans Spiedel, for example, sort of um, tried to position themselves as as just German patriots and conservatives. Uh, Spiedel was somewhat implicated in the July twenty plot. Uh, he was a Nazi general. Uh, and then he headed up the uh, Bundeswehr, which is the Wehrmacht, Wehrmacht's new name, the German army's integration into NATO, and then later served as supreme commander of allied forces in Central Europe. I mean, this is somebody who had been a Nazi general. And 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 you see this happen at high levels and at median levels and obviously at low levels uh, with German integration into NATO uh, uh, just constantly. Uh, Spiedel also was the leader of a stay-behind operation himself. Uh, which was set up by German uh, veterans, and then you can see the way this works with this with an example. So he has this organization of like SS veterans, right, who are willing to uh, basically kill left wing politicians and serve as a stay stay behind uh, group for NATO. They are supplied with weapons uh, clandestinely by a former German general who is now in charge of a group of border guards, and so. There's this sort of hidden Reich that's being built behind the facade of Adenauer's government. Um, that is really uh, that is not unknown to anybody in NATO, uh, and in fact is viewed as an asset.
1: Well, I'd say it's not it's not just unknown or viewed as an asset, but like the lines there are just really blurry. Yeah. Well, there like, is no line. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just you know they're they're almost all one in the same, right?
2: Yeah, and they serve a really important role. Um, I mean, the the a lot of the elements that became a part of Gladio were neo-fascist, you know, yes. groups that emerged post-war. But uh, you you could say a lot of the core elements and particularly the leadership had had just been fascists during yes. the war. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so you know, if you're if you're as we've been saying, the purpose, you know, if you look at the Marshall Plan and NATO as this uh, dual American assault on Europe. Um, and a big part of that is sold as attacking the working class in Europe. Yeah, uh, you can imagine that having the chief assaulters of the working class, <laughs> the fascists, on your side becomes a critical component um so rehabilitating them i think was was just kind of taken as a given i mean it's it's it had to be done in service of these goals
1: yeah i mean it's a real small pool to to for people to pick from right i mean it's like if you need people yeah. from the country that have a military background but whoops it can't be anyone who's you know sympathetic to any communist or a communist then really the only pool you can <laughs> you've got yeah. are the fascists it's not like there yeah. was like some <laughs> massive liberal militarized army that's just called fascist <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. Uh, uh,
0: you know, it's uh, – and, and, you know, my, my people, we're not – you know, that stuff's scary to us. We don't want to be involved <laughs> with planning a nuclear war or anything like that. Um, but, I mean, that we see that throughout the whole Cold War uh, is that the number one credential that, that you need, uh, and sometimes the only credential that you need uh, to join the U.S. in its fight against communism is to be an anti-communist. And what was the main current of anti-communism besides, I guess, monarchists prior to the Second World War? It was fascism. And so in, you see this like sort of bleed out effect for the next several decades. And so those people kind of age out. And then you get the more, um, I guess, American style fascist killers mm. that you saw emerge in like the 70s and 80s in particular.
1: To be fair, hours. NATO did partner with some monarchists. So <laughs> they had that one too as well. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Equal opportunity anti-konges. Yeah, yeah, that's
1: what they had in Belgium. Yeah, so. no, <laughs> yeah, yeah, true,
2: true, true.
0: So like we sort of mentioned several times throughout this episode, the actual strength of NATO forces – in Europe, uh, in, av, pri- after NATO's founding, not so hot. Uh, I actually read in a long RAND report. I gotta say, RAND, for all that I don't like about them, they put out a lot of reports. Great some reports. of them are pretty useful. Great I mean, reports. they got they got some good reports. Those guys, yeah, great reporters over there. Um, yeah, yeah, one of my favorite
1: journalistic outfits. Um, <laughs> I like but the idea of just calling people who write reports reporters, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. At least yeah, Rand
2: is honest about their allegiances, unlike most. Reporters. Oh yeah,
1: I will
0: say, yeah, Rand, Rand you don't. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no sort of like vice style beating around the bush with yeah, Rand. Exactly. No, but that's exactly. why
1: that stuff is the best to read. It's like you read it from the horse's mouth. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that's why I love reading DOD and all that kind of shit too. It's like yeah, he's one of my favorite writers. <laughs> um, <Donald> so,
0: <laughs> so after so after world war ii you know how like in war everyone has to fight like a war and shit it was like everyone dies and it's all fucked up and you're like your wife's at home and you know she's fucking american soldiers call the guys who fuck their wives Jody's. Um <laughs> and I, I, we can get into this at another time this is the year of the jody This is – if you live near 29 – listeners, if you live near 29 Palms, there are thousands of marine wives out at bars right now that you need to sidle up next to and purchase a little tequila sunrise for. Oh, that's so sad that he's gone. He must not care about you. They're not
1: in 29 Palms.
0: They're in 29 Palms. Um, Anyways, that was – believe me, they're in 29 Palms, Liz. Um this was the case in the aftermath of World War II. Everyone who had been in the army was like I don't want to be in the army anymore. This is this we're not fighting a war anymore. So it was massive demobilization all across Western Europe. I mean, the, the you know the, this is also having an army is expensive and if your country is broke you know, like some of these fucking jokers over in France and the low countries and shit, and especially Britain, uh, you don't really want to maintain a large standing army. That's anything more than an occupation force. So, you know, you have your guys in Germany and Austria, et cetera, but you don't necessarily want just a ton of guys, uh, hanging around, collecting a paycheck and just sitting around. Um, and so there was a, basically a handful of pretty ill-equipped and really uncoordinated divisions. Um, I mean there had been coordination between allied armies obviously in the second world war but this had never totally worked itself out and frankly the Americans really took a a big brunt of the offensive on Germany I mean on the western part of Germany really Soviets did most of the work uh but the Soviets still had a huge army um there's estimates for this is from the rand paper uh ranging them at 10 to 1 advantage of NATO troops in western Europe which you know listen I I'm no Desert Fox, Erwin Rommel over here. But even I can tell those numbers are not great. Um, And a large part of American military command basically doubted, and political, uh, doubted that Europeans actually wanted to fight, that they had any fight left in them. I mean, with good reason.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you consider the the political situation on the ground there, yeah. where you yeah. have you know coalition, you know, you essentially the model at that point in time was you know Christian Democrats in coalition with communists and socialists. Mm-hmm. You know, re- realistically, I mean, are these people going to try to try to actually have the fight to the finish with the Soviet Union, or more likely, they're going to try to achieve some kind of you know negotiated political settlement with them, and that's that does not sit well with with planners in Washington and in the Pentagon. And then in
0: 1953, something happened that. I don't even know if I want to talk about this. Something happened that changed the world. Um, things just sort of faded after that. Um, a Georgian, an Asian man um, who had occupied one of the highest offices in the world um, uh, perished. Uh, and they make funny movies about it now and it's ha ha ha. But a man, a human being with a family, a uh, very young wife, but wife nonetheless, um, died uh, in office and, uh, and had his whole country and vision taken over by Khrushchevite revisionists um, but but what I'm saying here is that Stalin died in '53, yeah. and this actually really changed the game because, as many people know, the Soviet Union started to suck ass after that, and they went on <laughs> something. My whole thing is, and I've said this before: the Soviet Union should have invaded
1: Western Europe.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like I, my, like they, they, probably they probably would given have given
1: them a new lease on life. You know, yeah. yeah, kind of like shored up the imagination at least. In terms, they could have of- won. You know, sure. there's a
2: reason. There's a reason they had a ten to one military advantage. I right. mean, you know, ide- ideology goes a long way. If you have something you can believe in, as opposed yeah. to Europe, what are we going to fight to be taken over by the Americans? That's really oh, as great. opposed to a, yeah. a develop. You know, turning Europe into a, a workers' paradise. That's a that's a hell of a vision. Right.
0: Exactly. And so, the Soviets did not invade when Stalin was alive. Probably, I'm guessing he had some sort of Mao type uh, traumatic brain injury from being old and that caused him to forget to do it. Uh, But after Khrushchev takes over, the Soviets go on one of the pussiest kinds of offensives, a peace offensive, uh, where basically they try to be like, oh, all that shit, we were kind of kidding about that. Like, we don't hate you guys as much anymore. And they start really trying to put out all these diplomatic feelers to the West Uh, But also start hosting, like, a lot of academics and sort of showing this, like, new post-Stalin Soviet Union.
1: Yeah, this is also basically, like, in uh, direct contradiction to what Americans are taught. (laughs) America I mean you're taught that there was a kind of opening up and a diplomatic opening up for sure after Stalin's death of course de-Stalinization people have kind of heard that term but the idea that uh the USSR was not interested in any kind of invasion of Europe is not something that let's say the Americans were happy about and still weren't I mean I I think still to this day don't want people to really understand about the Soviet Union
0: so the Americans also at this point basically knew, I don't think I put the quotes in the notes. I'm Sorry about that. I don't mean, I mean, my bad for rhyming there. Um, but I should just wrap the rest of this sentence. I won't. Um, I don't think I put the quotes in the notes, but uh, the the American uh, military establishment basically also didn't think the Soviets were going to invade, especially after Stalin's death. They were like, there's no indication that they're going to do it. Um, you know, there is no, there's no like troop movements or anything that like, there's no, there's no sign that they're going to invade Western Europe whatsoever. And, uh, so they started viewing the Soviet, um, let's say diplomatic and cultural and political entry into Western Europe or sort of re-entry into Western Europe as dangerous, uh, as actually the main threat, um, Harold MacMillan, uh, the UK Prime Minister and a a really staunch anti-communist, basically concluded from this that Russian peace propaganda is a bit dangerous, meaning that it threatened that much of the West's reason for foreign and domestic policy. Um, And this threat, which to be clear that NATO countries viewed as a massive threat, had to be fought via other means. And that means fighting it domestically, via politics, via money, espionage. And killing people,
2: yeah. And the the gladio structures, these these um, you know covert fascist paramilitaries, which were used for for political purposes to suppress the left wing, you know that those really got a new lease on life at this point in time because um, you know whereas before you could explicitly justify NATO's existence on the basis of we're we're trying to protect Europe from Soviet invasion. As we said, they didn't really think that was going to happen, but it was a good pretext, and they were able to convince the population that that was true. But in the face of this peace offensive, uh, they needed something new to scare people. And I think you can look at the uh, you know the, these right wing terror campaigns, particularly in Italy, uh, as a as a key way of of reinvigorating this sense of fear and danger, uh, which would allow for uh, this right wing political control over the continent.
0: Now, if that sounds exciting to you. Too bad, asshole. The episode's over. Um, I cannot believe we just got through the early history of NATO, um, but we are about to get into next episode. NATO's one and only Cold War uh, military operation that it undertook uh, on a continent-wide scale, you might say. Uh, we are going to be talking about one of the more overlooked. we you know, people talk about uh, you know NATO aggression. They point to you know Libya, Afghanistan, uh, Kosovo. Uh, they don't talk about what NATO actually did during the Cold War, which was kill thousands of people, uh, most of them civilians, uh, for the purposes of keeping communism out of Europe. And uh, and we are going to be talking about that next episode. You know, I wish I was in the State Department again. Uh, <laughs> solely so I could do a thing like the Marshall Plan and have it just be named like uh, the, the Belden. Bel- the, well, the Belden Plan. Oh yeah. <laughs> Wait. I guess I could do that.
1: Oh my god I gotta god. get to
0: work on the Belden plan again. Europe needs the Belden plan. Oh yeah, my you god. Get to work on that. They're not gonna like it. They're not gonna like it at all. Uh talk about deploying cruise missiles.
1: Well, we've got more about NATO coming up. Next episode, we got to talk about the paramilitary fascist squads that aren't just a tool of NATO, are basically NATO itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but until then, I'm Liz. My name is Brace. We are of course joined by producer Young Chomsky and this has been on. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. 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 <laughs> Jeffrey Epstein. jump for your Jeffery Epstein. jump Jeff, Jeff-, Jeff- Jeffery Epstein.